Welcome to Midweek, a place where we dive deep into Scripture. So grab your Bible, a pen, and a notebook, and get ready to study God's Word. All right, thanks for coming out, everybody. And uh, if you want to open up your Bibles to Daniel chapter 2, tonight we're going to look at Nebuchadnezzar's nightmare, okay? Because he's going to have one big nightmare. Um, We're going to cover 30 verses as we look at uh, the events leading up to trying to interpret this dream. It will be next week when we get into the dream and it's an interpretation because it's a long chapter. You just can't cover it all in one night. Uh, as I said in our pre-warm up here, that uh, Daniel and the Fab Four, they're showing so much promise that they're pretty much elevated above all the other of the king's wise men. And um, Nebuchadnezzar sees them as you know, kind of like above the rest of the team. Now, what's interesting is that at this point in time, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't know why they're better than all the other wise men. He doesn't understand that yet. He's going to understand. He's going to get firsthand experience of why these guys are better than the other ones, these four Hebrew young men, in, in, with this dream, with the first of the big deals in Daniel. He's going to understand that. But he will find out that these young men have access to God, a God who comes and he um, involves himself in his creation and he breaks in because one of the things about our world here, a naturalist materialist will say this is a closed system, that there is no God, God does not act in our lives, but we don't believe that whatsoever. We believe in a God who created everything and he breaks into the very system. He sustains the very system that he created. Amen to that one? Now let me share with you something that I think is really important um, because if, and this is a leadership thing, a uh, very important leadership thing. And, and you watched it, if you, if you watched the first couple, if you were with us the first couple weeks or any part of it, you'll see that um, uh, Daniel has passes. There's something called... Um, the integrity check of all leaders. And leaders go through integrity checks all the time. If you have anybody that's in a higher position at work, more than likely you didn't realize, but they're going through integrity checks and people above them are watching the integrity checks in their life. So the integrity check starts with uh, an inner conviction. You have this inner conviction, and for us Christians, our conviction is to obey the word of God, correct? And so you have this inner conviction. And then what happens with the inner conviction is the inner conviction is going to be challenged by something. And so we saw that, Daniel, you and the guys are going to have to eat the king's food and drink the king's drink. Now there's a challenge to his inner conviction, and let's take it from what you said earlier, uh, that, um, that he doesn't want to defile himself. So there's this inner conviction, it's been challenged, what's Daniel going to do? And so now the challenge comes, we know that Daniel... Uh, he works with Ashpenaz and he finds a different way out and he proves by obeying God that he's, you know, there 10 days go by, they're 10 times better, 10 times fatter. And so what happens at the end of that? Well, once you have an inner conviction and then you're challenged in the inner conviction and you stay true to the inner conviction, God's observing all these tests in your life, then you have a ministry expansion. And Daniel now and the guys will be raised up a little bit higher in a sense than all the other wise men. And we see that in scripture. And that's true of all of us in God. Anybody that's not rising up somewhere, it's because we're not living up to the inner conviction. Because the Bible says in, uh, I think it's, it's Psalm 75, but it might be verse six or seven. It's one of those two in there that God raises up one and he puts down another. And so God is the one that elevates or God is the one who puts people, keeps people in lower positions. 
And it all is based on whether you obey the inner conviction of your life, and then you're going to get a challenge on that inner conviction, and how are you going to live that conviction out? And so God looks at those things. So if you want to elevate, if you want God to elevate you, that's one of the ways to do it. Now, with that said, can I just give you something that interests me, may not interest any of you, but maybe a few of you. Is that okay? Good, because you're going to get it no matter what. So, um, and you know I say that every time. But um, uh, some people will tell you, um, and these are typically um, atheist or skeptic uh, scholars, they'll say that Daniel, who we know was deported in 605 BC, they will tell you that Daniel could not have written this, this book of Daniel at that time frame, that he had to have written it way later, maybe somewhere about 150 A.D., like about 450 years later. You know why they say that? They say that because their words are that he got too many things right. And that's why they say that. And he did. Because as we're going to progress, we're going to see not the dream itself tonight, but next week, and we'll see the definitions of it, you're going to see that Daniel, in his predictions, and his prophecies, I should say, that he does... He does point out that the Medo-Persian Empire will come after the Babylonians. They'll conquer them. The Greeks will conquer the Medo-Persians. He does point out that the Romans will conquer the Greeks. He does point out, he, he, we're going to even see later, I think it's chapter 9, that he even talks about who we know as Antiochus Epiphanes IV, who is the one who really defiles the temple at that time. He names all these things among many, many other things. He's so specific and he's so right on, they think he couldn't have written it. But here's the thing about that. When they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, you've heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls, right? And if you ever go to Israel with us and you go to Jerusalem there with us to the museum, you'll see them. It's not the real ones. That's a copy. They keep the real ones packed away. But you'll see a, a copy of it in that round. It's, it's really cool, this museum and stuff like that. But in the Dead Sea Scrolls, if I remember correctly, they, they had about eight copies of the book of Daniel from the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, the copies, not the original. The, when you say the original autograph, that's the, when, the one that Daniel wrote himself. We have none of the original autographs of anything. We have copies of everything. And we have early copies of many things. And so, um, and so there was eight of them. And, give, and it had 11, the 11 chapters of Daniel. It didn't have the 12th. They got the 12th from other copies that, they found other, that they've had in other places. And so they will say, and, and once they found that, these Dead Sea Scrolls are dated, the actual scrolls and wh when they were written, these copies were made, about 100 to 150 B.C. because of style and everything like that. So they can date it that way. And, and so when you look at things like that, now, 150 B.C., they say, okay, Daniel probably wrote these skeptics. He wrote it 150 B.C. Well, Antiochus Epiphanes IV, he lived in 167. That's when he did that. So 17 years earlier. And so scholars will point out, and for those of you who like this stuff, I eat it up. Some of you may think that was a waste of my time, but it's okay. I like that. Um, they'll say that in five, uh, five decades from 150 to 100 BC that you would never canonize a book. It doesn't happen that fast. And so for Daniel to have a canonized book at that period in time in 150 BC, it proves that he didn't live at that time. He lived way before that, and he gave the prophecies that came true as time went by. Did you guys understand that? And if you didn't, God bless you. Hallelujah, okay? So enough on that. And so we're going to look at Nebuchadnezzar's nightmare, 
And his insomnia is going to turn to a great opportunity for Daniel's instruction in his life. We're going to cover 30 verses tonight. You're probably thinking that's impossible, but no, we're going to do it. And really, we're going to see the whole interaction between um, the king, the dream, and his pressure for people to give him the interpretation of the dream. So Daniel 2 verse 1 says this. It says, uh, Now in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Now, he's got this dream, and his dream is really, really bugging him. Now, for you and I, dreams aren't a big deal in, in the American culture. But in the Middle Eastern culture, they're a big deal. I mean, they're huge. They really believe that God is speaking to you in dreams. And I've shared with you before, I've heard some, uh, and I'm a Summers of God, when I go to the Summers of God uh, conferences, and they have uh, some of the God preachers from, say, uh, Syria or Lebanon and different places there, they'll share with you of people there that receive dream, that Jesus visits them in dreams, and they take it very seriously to the point that they have converted over to Christianity from their Muslim faith. That's how, how uh, they take it so serious. So the dreams for a Middle Easterner is a big deal. So he calls in his modern, what we would call a think tank. They're all of his experts to interpret these things. Verse 2. Then the king gave orders to call in the magicians, uh, the conjurers, the sorcerers of the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. The king, verse 3, said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is anxious to understand the dream. And so he has the nightmare. He calls in all of his guys who know how to interpret these dreams. And if you're one of these guys, you're thinking, okay, this is my chance to get in good with the king. I'm going to find out. He's going to tell me what that dream is, and I'm going to give him the interpretation. He tells him, I've had a dream, and I am anxious. Now, let me give you a sidebar, something that maybe you did not catch, um, and it took me years to catch it. But once I caught it, I caught it, and that is this. Now, look at verse 1 in, in Daniel Now, it says that Nebuchadnezzar had what? Dreams, right? Okay, now look at verse 3. The king said to them, I had a what? So in verse 1, it says he has dreams, plural. In verse 3, it says he has a dream, correct? You follow that? Okay, now what in the world is going on here? Well, the best way to explain that would simply be this. That in verse 1, he says, I've had dreams. In verse 3, he says, I've had a dream, because now he's talking to these interpreters. I've had this dream is that in verse 1 when he says, I've had dreams, he's basically saying, I've had a reoccurring nightmare. Have you ever had a reoccurring nightmare, anybody? I remember I used to have them as a kid, reoccurring nightmares. I remember. You want to know what mine was? We would go picnicking on top of the Empire State Building, and I couldn't stay on, and I would fall off every time. That was bad, okay? I had that one reoccurring through my elementary school years. It was just a terrible, terrible dream. Yeah, reoccurring nightmare. And so, so that's what's happening here with this. Verse 4. Um, then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic. And by the way, there are certain parts of Daniel that are written in Aramaic. We know that the Bible is written in three languages. So New Testament's Greek, Old Testament's Hebrew. But pieces of Daniel are written in Aramaic. That's the third language the Bible is written in. So the king said then, uh, verse 4, I'm sorry. Then the Chaldeans spoke uh, to the king in Aramaic. O king, live forever. Tell the dream to your servants, and we will declare the interpretation. Well, how easy would that be, huh? Yeah, okay. So they tell the king, they go, king, great, we're here. 
Just tell us what the dream is and we'll give you the interpretation. That must have been the protocol that they've been living by for all this time, right? Because this is what they're coming in and doing. So, <laughs> of course, anybody can make up an interpretation. So, <clears throat> he's going to put them to the test. It's interesting to me that he's going to put them to the test because in Daniel chapter 1, was Daniel and his guys put to the test? Yes, now the rest of the Magi, these other guys, these Chaldean Magi, they're going to be put to the test also. So here we go. Verse 5. The king replied to the Chaldeans, The command from me is firm. Here's the command. Here's where it gets really interesting. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you will be torn limb from limb, and your houses will be made a rubbish heap. Verse 6, but if you declare the dream and its interpretation, you will receive from me gifts and a reward and great honor. Therefore, declare to me the dream and its interpretation. Whoa. <laughs> they come in thinking, tell us a dream. We'll give you the interpretation. He says, not this time. This time you're going to tell me what the dream is. And then you're going to tell me the interpretation. And if you don't, I'm going to have you torn limb from limb. And your homes will be turned into rubble. What a nice guy, huh? <laughs> now, let me show you what these Babylonian kings were like. Just very quickly, keep your, your thumb here. Look at chapter 5 in Daniel very quick. We're just going to read it and come right back just so you see that this is pretty consistent with the Babylonian uh, kings here. Look at... Uh, Look at verse 19. It says, Because of the grandeur which he bestowed on them, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language feared and trembled before him. Whomever he wished, he killed. How fun. And whomever he wished, he spared alive. And whomever he wished, he elevated. And whomever he wished, he humbled. So the king there, whoever he wishes, he just kills him. And he can just do that because he's the king in Babylon. So you've, back to chapter 2 now. So you know you find that these, these kings are not the nicest of guys, are they? And so these guys know when King Nebuchadnezzar says these things, he means business. So the pressure's on these guys right now. No, look at verse 7. And it says, uh, They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell the dream to his servants. Now they're begging, guys. And we will declare the interpretation. Verse 8. The king replied, I know for certain that you are bargaining for time. Now, remember bargaining for time, because we'll get back to that way at the end. Bargaining for, inasmuch as you have seen that the command from me is firm. In other words, you heard what I said, and now you're bargaining. That if you do not make the dream known to me, there's only one decree for you. For you all have agreed together to speak lying and corrupt words before me until the situation is changed. Therefore, tell me the dream that I may know that you can declare to me its interpretation. Is the pressure on? Yes. Are they stalling for time? Yes. Oh, you better believe it. And he sees right through them, right? Yes. He knows what they're doing right there. He says, so quit stalling. You better tell me the dream right now or you know what's coming. And so the pressure's on in these guys. So here we go, verse 10. Here's, now watch the way they scramble. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who could declare the matter for the king. Inasmuch as no great king or ruler has ever asked 
anything like this of any magician, conjurer, or Chaldean. Now, bullet point, if you're taking notes. It's just a good practical application for us taken from these guys. We need to be honest with ourselves. Any amens on that? We just need to be honest with ourselves. I want you to think about these guys. They say to the king, there's nobody. There's not a person alive who has the ability to do what you're asking us to do. In other words, are they finally being honest about themselves for the first time in a long time? They're saying, we don't have that kind of ability. They're being actually honest for this first time. Now, let me just tell you one of my strong bents in, in life and in ministry, and I, I try to practice, I try to practice. Uh, one of the things that helped me so much, you know, going back 30-some years, and you guys, if you've been here quite a while, you know my story, I don't have to rehash it, but was at age 33, I had to start being honest with myself. I just had to. I couldn't lie to myself anymore. I couldn't be in denial about myself anymore. Had to be honest about myself and all my issues and all my baggage. And boy, did I have a lot. Um, and I just think we would be a lot healthier and we'd have a lot better relationships if we were just honest with ourselves. Any amen to that one right there? I, I just think it, it just makes so much, so much sense. You know, the problem is, and, and, and because of my position I have counseled people so much over the years, and I talk to people, and, and I, you know, I'm, I, I'm in a position in life where I deal with them from the womb to tomb and everything in between. And so, um, you know, you, you talk to so many people over the years, they go from one breaking, broken relationship to the next broken relationship to the next broken relationship, or this person quits this job to go to the next job, and the boss this and this, and they quit that job to go to the next job, or the people are this and this, and they quit that job, go to the next job. Are you following me so far? Or they go to one church and they don't like this and that where the pastor did that or that person looked at me funny or whatever and they quit that church, go to the next church and the same thing happens there and they quit that one, they go to the next one, they quit that one, they go to the next one, they keep moving. And, and here's the question I try to tell that person, if they'll listen, who is the common denominator in all that movement? Themselves. Themselves. Look, I already know when a person comes to church and starts making trouble fast, if I could find out from them what churches they've come from, I could call those pastors and they would probably know exactly who that person was. It's just what it is, guys. Because some people are just not going to deal with themselves and they want to deal with everybody else but not themselves. Here's the, here's the hard one. And this is the hard one. I think the first time I ran into this was, uh, was at a gas station. Yeah, I just thought I forgot about that. Um, but I've run into this in counseling people around the altar in my office. But I remember the, uh, it was an older gentleman. Um, I need to write this down so I don't forget this, okay? Um, but I remember this man was pumping gas, and it was the Arco on the end of Weston Acrona, uh, near Maple Avenue. I was, I was probably in around, I don't know, early 30s. You know, I was a youth minister. And he started to open up to me, and he was pumping gas, I was pumping gas, and, uh, and I started asking questions, and, you know, because, you know, you're concerned, he was a real sad guy, he probably, and I was 30-some, he was probably about, you know, I was 30, he looked like he was 100, he was probably 50, okay, so, <laughs> probably younger than I am now, but, um, but he said that, yeah, his family didn't want to talk to him, his wife had divorced him, and all these things, and he started sharing about how, you know, he never basically admitted anything, and, and they would try to get to him and he just always blamed them and now he's all alone in his life and it's too late. You know how many people I've talked to like people that have gone through that in their life? 
probably about 10, and 10's 10 too many. Because all you had to do was really admit to yourself instead of blaming everybody else. See, the problem is we always want to blame somebody else instead of saying, okay, what is it in me that needs to change? What can I admit to myself that would help me be healthier and healthier relationally in my life? So these guys, if you really caught it, they're finally being honest about themselves to themselves. Are they not? That's a really good move in their life. Now, we're going to follow that up with the next bullet point and look at verse 11. Moreover, the thing which the king demands is difficult. R really? And there is no one else who could declare it to the king except God's, whose dwelling place is not with mortal flesh. Now, now, not, bullet point number two there, second bullet point, not number two, but second bullet We need to be honest and admit. Now, first they're honest about themselves. That they, they, and now they're admitting, hey, only God can do that. We can't do that. And so now there's an admission. Okay. And they admit that they have no, they admit that they have no access to the gods. None whatsoever. That's a big admission. Question. Is that embarrassingly humbling for them? Yeah, because they're in high positions, right? They're supposed to have the, be these people that have access. So the question is, why are they admitting? Because they know that they're going to what? They're going to die, okay? So now they're admitting that we don't have access to the gods. We're going to die. Which application? If we don't start being honest and admit, we could kill, die off in our relationships. Amen? Now, let me get into something that... In a second, I'll take you to a verses, verses here that's not in your notes, but I thought, eh, we, sh we should do this. Um, they're admitting. They say, we have no access to God's. They're admitting that they have no access to the spirit world, right? Right? Follow me? Okay, that's what they're admitting. Okay. I find that interesting. Because you see all kinds of people today, you know, the fortune tellers, astronomers, the palm readers, the mediums, seances, they all, they all say, we have, we have access to the spirit world. That, that's what they're telling us, right? Right? Okay. Turn with me. Keep your thumb here. Um, turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 18. Let me read the verse, and let me talk a little bit about this. Just, just in case if somebody is in this or veering off into this kind of stuff, just to show you biblically. Deuteronomy 18, Old Testament book. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It's the fifth book of the Old Testament, the law. Now look at chapter 18 of Deuteronomy, and we're going to read verse, I'll, I'll read verse 9 to 14, then, I'll, then I'm going to make some comments after that. This is as they're traveling through the desert. They've left Egypt, their new nation. These are the laws God's given them so that they will not be like the other pagan nations. It says, when you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, you shall not learn to imitate the detestable things of those nations. In other words, you don't imitate the pagan nations. There shall not be found among you anyone, and I was going to tell them things you're not going to be doing, who makes his son or daughter pass through the fire. Now, you're going to find that all through that Old Testament. This is they would sacrifice babies to the god idol Molech. Even the Israelites started doing it themselves, as you read later on in the Old Testament. They're killing babies, that's what they were in the Old Testament. That's why God um, has the Israelites wipe out certain nations, because they were killing the babies. And God gave them, in case you think God is just callous, no. In Genesis 15, God gave them four generations or 400 years to repent, and they chose not to repent. 
So God says, now you're going to wipe those people out. Which leads to another interesting thing, too, I like to say, is that, you know, when people tell you that why doesn't God do something about evil, well, there he does something about evil, right? And then when God does something about evil, what do they complain about now? Oh, God's a mean God. So you can't win one or the other with an unbeliever because they're a natural thinker and they're not going to think correctly. Amen? And so you remember that. Now, let's read on. Middle verse 10. One who uses divination, one who practices witchcraft, or one who interprets omens or a sorcerer, or one who casts a spell or a medium or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. For whoever does these things is detestable to the Lord. And because of these detestable things, the Lord your God will drive them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For those nations which you shall dispossess, listen to those who practice witchcraft and to diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do so. You got that? Let me make some comments on that. Um, you know, somebody may say, um, well, you know, I went to, uh, I don't know, fortune teller, whatever, or seance, and, you know, it was my Auntie M from 1930 was talking to that person, you know, and stuff like that. And they just hit things right on the money. Boy, how could they have known those things? Well, wait a minute. Haven't demons been around a long time? And cannot demons plant thoughts in that person's mind to speak out those things? Yes. Absolutely. Okay. So you be careful. You, don't, you, want to enter, you want to do those things because you see, let me say it like this. Okay, recently, a person comes up to me after service. I've known this person probably 10, 12 years. And they asked me about going to a somebody who can talk to the dead and stuff like that. And, and they weren't being malicious about it at all. They were really just seeking my advice or else they would never have come to talk to me. And this was recent. And, uh, and you could see they're just hungry to finally get an answer to a certain dilemma in their life. And I told the person, I said, no, no. I said, when you, when you go to do that, here's why you don't want to do that. Because you, what you're doing is you're opening yourself up to the demonic, is what you're doing. Plus, by opening yourself up to the demonic and doing that, what you're really doing is you're saying, I need the demonic to lead me and guide me. Yes. When they're, we know the thief comes to steal, kill, and to destroy, correct? Right. So, we never go towards that because that will, and they always, they always prey on your fears and anxieties. And God doesn't do stuff like that. So you have to go to God because God is the one who directs you, not the demonic. And I know it was a very difficult thing for that person who really was looking for some kind of answers to a situation in their life, but I said, you can't do that. You do not open yourself up to these things. Because once you do, you open yourself up to demons. And you just got to leave it alone. Leave it alone. Amen? Amen? Okay, hopefully that helped anybody. Um, go back to Daniel chapter 2. Okay, we're at um, verse, uh, verse 12. Because of this, the king became indignant. In other words, they say, we can't answer this. We can't do this, king. The king becomes indignant, very furious. Uh, it won't be the last time you see Nebuchadnezzar furious. And gave orders to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. Now the order's given. 
Verse uh, 13, so the decree went forth that the wise men should be slain and they looked for Daniel and his friends to kill them. So now it comes out, here you go, you guys can't answer it, you can't tell me the dream, go out and kill all the wise men. Is Daniel a wise man? Yeah, are his friends wise men? That's right. So now Daniel's in a tough situation, isn't he? Now they're coming to kill him. Now once again, he finds himself in a pickle. And once again, if we look at Daniel and how he handles the situation, it will help us handle difficult situations in our lives. Now let's see what he does. Verse 14, 15. Then Daniel replied with discretion and discernment to Arioch, the captain of the king's bodyguard, who had gone forth to slay the wise men of Babylon. So Arioch is the guy coming to kill them. And Daniel's replying to him with discretion. And he said to Arioch, the king's commander, for what reason is the decree from the king so urgent? Then Arioch informed Daniel about the matter. Now, Daniel's response in your notes, number one, and that's this. He calmly asked the question. And I would circle the word calmly. He calmly asks a question. He doesn't panic. He doesn't run. He doesn't get loud. He doesn't get emotional. He doesn't get out of control. He just is calm, very calm, okay? And he asks a question, and he just uses wisdom. He calmly discusses with the guy who's come to kill him. Did you catch what Arioch did? When Daniel asked him a question, did you catch what Arioch did? He's coming to kill Daniel, but what does he do instead? He, he sits he looks at him and, he, and he says to him, it says at the end of verse 15, then Arioch informed Daniel about the matter. So now he says, well, let me tell you what it's all about. In other words, the king said, go kill him. And then Daniel calmly asks a question and the guy calmly gives, gives an answer to, to Daniel, right? Here's what I like about this very quickly. In chapter two, Arioch listens to Daniel, right? In chapter one, Ashpenaz listens to Daniel, right? What is it about Daniel that people listen to? I mean, think about that. Don't you want to be a person that people listen to? How many older people know this? Remember the old commercial when E.F. Hutton talks, What? People listen. Young people go, I have no clue what you're talking about. It's okay. It's okay. These were great commercials way back in the 1911s. And no, I'm just joking. But they were, they were really cool because these commercials would say, when E.F. Hutton talks, because it's an investment for him, if I remember right, and then it shows everybody in the room leaning in like he's going to talk because they want to know what he's going to say, right? I mean, don't you want to... When I grow up, I want to be like Daniel, okay? I want people to listen to me. I want to have something that, that I have to say that, that people would listen to in my life. Don't you? I think it's really important. But he stays calm. Stay calm, guys. Because when you don't stay calm, you're just going to say things and you're going to regret stuff. Now, look at verse 16, 7 18. So Daniel went in and requested of the king that he would give him time in order that he might declare the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house. So notice he goes to the king. Then he went to his house and informed his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. That's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These are their Hebrew names here. About the matter. In order that they might request compassion from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his friends might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Now, the second thing, number two in your notes is this. He asked for time to pray. Daniel says, I need time. Now, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't know it's going to be a prayer meeting, but he is asking for time so he can pray. So in the first chapter, he asked for 10 days so they can eat vegetables, drink water, and show Ashwinaz will be okay. And in this chapter, 
Now he's asking for time. <clears throat> he goes to the Fab Four. He's one of the Fab Four. He says, we need to pray. We need to ask God, because this, this, is, this, is, this is do or die time. And so they have, so you could say it like this. This is the first student-led prayer meeting in recorded history. Is it not? It really is. And we're seeing more of that now, right? Right? right. We're seeing more young people. Um, look, I, I have a real heart for young people. Uh, and maybe just as I get older, um, I know that more than I've ever known that we have to let our young people minister. We have to give them room to grow, right? Because they're going to be the ones leading the church. We all have a pool date. I got a pool date on me. Um, we, we can't, you know, I went and saw the Jesus Revolution Friday night. Have you ever seen that movie? Anybody seen that? Okay. It, it, it was, I got saved about 10 years after that Jesus Revolution started. So I came in to it when Greg Laurie already had the church in Riverside. Um, so I, I didn't remember, I remember some of it, but I saw more of what Chuck Smith said on Channel 40 back then in the early 80s. I got saved in, in 79. And it was a lot of young people. I had forgotten about that. And I'm glad I watched it because it just reminded me again all the young people in that room and how important they were and how God moved them. And uh, I can remember once watching Chuck Smith, it's probably about 1981, 1982, somewhere in that time frame. And he was talking, reflecting back on what was happening in this, they called it the Jesus movement back then. And he remember, he was just very accepting of these young people and where they were at because they were just basically hippies. They were raw, man. But he was accepting of them. And he wasn't, he wasn't condemning them. He wasn't putting them down. He wasn't driving them away. He wasn't doing any of those things. He just, they'd come on in. And I mean, that thing just grew and grew and grew. And, and it, I, I'm glad I saw it because I walked away going, I, I just got to remember that. I just need to remember that I am a missionary to a younger generation. That I have to let them grow. I have to let them rise up. You, you know who all those hippies became? Yeah, the conservatives of what we know today. All of us old conservatives were the hippies back then. People forget that. We came out okay, huh? And you gave them room to grow. So let the young people, let them minister, let them grow. It's a very, very important thing. Amen to that one right there? Okay, good. I don't even know where I'm at because I went off the map on my notes right here. So I'm going to go. Oh, I, I Okay, yeah. Chapter what? Oh, verse 17, okay. But let me, let, me, let me give you a quick side note. Side note, okay. Is Daniel, does he request an audience with, with the king? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Does he have the answer yet when he goes in there? No. Is that risky? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's real risky, man. I, don't, I wouldn't have done that. I mean, what guy wants to kill me because I don't know the answer, but let me go talk to him anyway. <laughs> really? Yeah, okay, uh, so no, no one at this time knows the dream. No one knows the interpretation. Not the think tank of Nebuchadnezzar. Not Daniel's guys. No one knows anything. And he's going to walk in there to the king and ask him a few questions. That's dangerous right there. So think about this truth because Daniel has no answers yet. You ever been there? 
You have no answers yet, huh? Okay. Let me just make this statement. Here's a key truth. When we get to the end of our ability, when we don't know the answer and the clock is ticking, that doesn't mean that God is idle. That doesn't mean that God isn't doing anything. Because God is doing something. But He's teaching us that He is sufficient for us. Amen? Amen. And that's a big lesson to learn repeatedly for me, I know, in my life. Now, verse 19. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in the night vision. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Now watch what he says. Daniel said, Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever. For wisdom and power belong to him. It is he who changes the times. Say, changes the times. We'll get back to it. And the epochs, he removes kings. Will he remove Nebuchadnezzar? Eventually, yes. And establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men. Is he giving it to Daniel? Yep. And knowledge to the men of understanding. Did he give Daniel knowledge? Yep. Mm -hmm. It is he who reveals the profound and hidden things. Did he reveal the dream to Daniel? You better believe it. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. For you have given me wisdom and power. Even now you have made known to me what we requested of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. Now, point three, very big point. He pauses life to praise God. He pauses life to praise God. Did you notice that once he gets what the dream is and the interpretation, he doesn't rush in to see Nebuchadnezzar. Did you catch that? That's not what he does. That's not the first thing that he does. What he does is he pauses. And he pauses to praise God, which which is a, a great thing. And I thought to myself, do I do that all the time? I don't know if I do that all the time. How many times do we just get God's answer, take it for granted, and off we go willy-nilly, right? Well, we need to pause and praise God. I, I know I do. And, and you can think about it in that Luke 17 story. Remember the 10 lepers when they come to Jesus? Remember that story? Yeah. And he says, go show yourself to the priest. And they, and they start walking, and all of a sudden, they notice that they're what? They're healed. What, and nine keep walking, and one turns back. When the one turns back in Luke 17, Jesus asks him, were there not 10? Where are the other nine? Where are they at? Only one came back and praised God. Only one paused his life and praised God. You see, that's what we need to do. Whenever God's blessing, and look, I know you guys are worshipers and praisers and everything, and that's a good thing to always stop, pause, and praise God. Now, let me close. I got a close and I got a close close. I have a hat. One day I might have a close close close. But I'll do, let me, let me, the first one I, it's gonna, let me try to explain this. This is another interesting to Jim Del Campo hope but it's for you. So um, we're gonna eventually read 24 to 30 but not yet. Now, look at verse 8 and 9. The king replied, I know for certain that you are bargaining for what? Time. Bargaining for time. This is a big piece, right? This is is a repeated idea. Inasmuch as you have seen that the command from me is firm, 
that if you do not make the dream known to me, there is only one decree for you, for you have agreed together to speak lying and corrupt words before me until the situation is what? Changed. Ah, so, in other words, until the time changes. So they're bargaining for time until the time changes, and he sees right through that. In other words, he's telling them, you're bargaining for time until the time changes when I calm down and I forget about that and it doesn't matter anymore and I let you off the hook. You see that? That's, that's exactly what, what he's telling him. So, <clears throat> now notice this in verse 21. Remember this one? Daniel says, it is he who changes the what? Oh, he changes the times. Okay. We know, he says, it's, it's, it's you, God, who changes the times. Now think about that. They're bargaining for time. He says, I know you're just waiting for time. You're trying to stretch time so I will calm down and forget about it. Daniel says, you're the one who changes the times. And then he even says, you remove kings. in verse Now think about this whole idea of, of changing times. Does Daniel now know the dream? Does Daniel know that Nebuchadnezzar is going down? Does Daniel know that Babylon is going down? He knows all. So what does Daniel know? He knows that times are a-changing. Right? Times are changing. Now you've watched this times changing, bargaining for time. Times are changing right here. And so now he knows that times are changing as a result of God's intervention. God's going to intervene. Babylon will go down. He knows that Medo-Persia after that will go down. Then he knows the Greeks will conquer that. Then the the Romans will conquer the Greeks. He knows times are going to keep changing. He knows the future. He knows times are changing. That's just one thought. I just wanted to give you that one because I like that one. But let me finish with this. The difference between praise and pride because you see it in here. Now let me read 24 through 30. Therefore Daniel went into Arioch because now he's got the interpretation. He knows the dream, knows the interpretation. Whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and spoke to him as follows. Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me into the king's presence and I will declare the interpretation to the king. So Daniel says, hey, I got it. Take me in there. I'm ready. But Daniel's already paused to praise God and now he's going to declare it. Verse 25. Then Arioch hurriedly brought Daniel into the king's presence and spoke to him as follows. I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can make the interpretation known to the king. The king said to Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, remember, Daniel's name was changed to Belteshazzar, that's his Chaldean name now. Are you able to make uh, known to me the dream which I have seen in its interpretation? Daniel answered before the king and said, as for the mystery about which the king was in, has inquired, neither wise men, conjurers, magicians, nor diviners are able to declare it to the king. However, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries and he has made known to the king 
made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. Now Nebuchadnezzar knows that this dream and the interpretation is futuristic. This is what's going to happen as, as history progresses now, as it plays out. This was your dream and the visions in your mind while on your bed. As for you, O king, while on your bed, your thoughts turn to what would take place in the future. And he who reveals mysteries has made known to you what will take place. But as for me, this mystery has not been revealed to me for any wisdom residing in me more than any other living man, but for the purpose of making the interpretation known to the king that you may understand the thoughts of your mind. Now, there's two big differences in this text. And this is all I want to finish up and point it out to you. In verse 25, look at it. Ariok goes into the king, and what does he say? I have found the man. Look at verse 26 now. The king says to Daniel, Are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen? Are you able, able to do this? And then in, um, then you go to verse 28. Daniel says, no, however, there's, there's a God in heaven. Because Daniel says, no, it's not me. There's a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he's the one who does it. So you think about these two guys. Ariok basically says, I found the guy. Daniel says, I can't interpret. It's God in heaven who does these things. So one is prideful, taking credit for the source. And one is humble and praising God, giving God the credit for the source. And you see the difference between the two as they come in there to, to talk to the king. Now, we'll pause here, and next week, now we see the dream, and he gives the interpretation, and it's one of the most amazing prophetic things that you'll ever find in Scripture as Daniel lays out the future. And we know it as the past now, most of it. So let's pray. God, thank you that, um, you know, one of the great things about why we know this, this um, collection of 66 writings, this Bible, why it is from, from you, because no man could have done this. This is an impossible thing to have written just by men. It was inspired by God because there's too much accuracy prophetically in, in these documents. And so, Lord, as we begin next week to look at these prophetic statements and see how they play out, God, I pray, God, it just energizes, it ignites us to want to wanna share these things, to see what kind of God we serve, this God who has control of the destiny of our planet and of our lives. Thank you, Jesus, for this evening. And I pray for safety on the way home on these wet roads, God. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. If you need prayer or dedicated your life to Christ, please reach out to us on our social media, on Facebook and Instagram at NBCCNorco, or email us at hello at NBCC.com. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to share and subscribe to this podcast.